Lord, we agree with those prayers and do desire that you would use us in a lost world. We desire this morning as we look into this passage to be very, very clear as to the solution to the problems that we see all around us. We know that you are the only answer and that your gospel message is the only means by which people will not only straighten their individual lives out, but as it affects the culture, will have impact in all of our culture. So we do pray for our nation. We do pray for our leaders and desire that they would uh, turn to you, find your answers, find your word, and lead according to your principles. So we look to you today and confess any sin that may hinder us from grasping the full impact of your word. This morning, we're going to look at an area that I think most of you are familiar with, most of you are aware of, most of you believe, but I think we need to make sure that our thinking is clear on what the gospel is, and this is the beginning of the gospel in the book of Romans. This is what Paul begins with, and he gives, first of all, bad news, which you need to know the bad news before you're ready to seek an alternative to the bad news or to understand that there's something available, that there's actually what Mary Lee says, to seek a solution. So man under wrath, we tend to minimize that. We tend to overshadow that. And in the presentation of the gospel, we oftentimes either avoid it or generally water it down sometimes. Now, it can be done in a tactful way. It can be done in a honest and accurate way. It doesn't have to be abrasive or ill-mannered, but it can be presented the actual real condition of mankind. I'm just going to say that we've had this discussion of wrath, of God's wrath last week, and we so often from our human perspective of a limited wrath but we forget that we are dealing with an infinitely holy, yes. infinitely sovereign God, which completely changes the whole equation. Absolutely. For, which is why we had Jesus Christ die for us, because only an infinite God can forever forgive any sin against him. Uh, I can forgive you for whatever, and I'm supposed to forgive you, and, right. because these are temporary yes. things. But only, mm-hmm. And also, only in God can forgive the horrific things that have been committed throughout this world that are just unimaginable. And, yes. Uh, but it, and if, so it changes the whole equation about, you know, one-to-one. Yes. You know, we, we're told eye for an eye, but with God, it is so infinitely high. What is enough to satisfy God? So yeah. that was... My- yeah, requires an infinite sacrifice. Yes. And one of the things I tried to stress is if you understand God's wrath, then you'll appreciate the grace that is offered that you're talking about. Well, a little outline. Just kind of a quick overview. This is kind of the provision of God's righteousness. When God provides his righteousness, it's not just for salvation, as you'll see. That's the starting point. But first, you need to know that You have a need, therefore he deals with the first major and one of the largest sections in the book of Romans, that man is under condemnation. The way of putting it, the way I've got it kind of titled today, is we're under God's wrath, and that's mankind apart from Jesus Christ, apart from trusting what he has provided 
So he's going to deal with the guilt of all of humanity. That's 18 through the end of chapter 1. And in the religious community of the first century, Jewish people, they thought, well, we're Jewish. We're not under the same condemnation as the Gentiles or non-Jews are. So we're kind of a special case. And Paul's going to argue in chapter 2, 1 through 3, 8, that Jews are even more accountable and even more under the wrath of God because they have God's revelation in a very special way. Then he concludes by showing that all of mankind stands guilty before a holy God. So this is just the beginning of this major section, very important. And I've outlined chapter 1 in a chart form here, verse 18. This is what we'll deal with today. Man under God's wrath. Man in a desperate situation, and there's no hope. The only hope is Jesus Christ. So... If you were in court, you would want the lawyer to present the case. So he declares, this is the the status. In other words, all are under guilt, all stand condemned, all are guilty, however you want to put it, before a holy God. And now before the judge, the judge says, give me the evidence. So 19 through 23, he's going to give the reasons for it. He's going to present the evidence that's going to lead to conviction. And based on what he says in verse 18, he's going to further expand not only the evidence, but give uh, also how this wrath is demonstrated. In other words, here are the details. of it. Here's the detailed evidence. Here's exhibit A. Here's exhibit B. Here are all the associated circumstantial evidence that go along with the main arguments of the case. So 24 through 32, the rendering of God's wrath, where it's evident, where you can see it. It's plain as day. It's written down. It's it's observable. So that's the essence of the section. So this is the very most important part of it, verse 18. So we need to understand it. So we'll spend some time looking at it. And in our outline, we have the guilt of humanity, virtually the rest of chapter 1. The reason for that is because man has rejected God. So we have the rejection of God, 18 through 23. Some of the reasons, well, the revelation of wrath, that's at verse 18, which we'll look at. And then 19, he's going to talk about the reasons, or begin at least arguing the case, why the wrath of God is upon mankind. So there's your brief outline. And as we've said several times, we look at sentence by sentence when we're looking at the biblical text. So the sentence runs from verse 18 to the end of 19. There's the period. And then we look for the main clause. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Everything else is going to tell us something about that main clause. And if you want to narrow it down even closer, the subject of that sentence is the wrath or wrath. And it's not just any kind, it's the wrath of God. And the subject is revealed, one word. So the word revelation in its verb form is the verb of the sentence. So everything is going to tell us in this sentence something about the revealing or the revelation of God's wrath. See how this works? See how language is structured? So the rest of it, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, is telling us a little bit about the men that are under wrath. And then 19, because, now he's going to go in the same sentence, start this whole exposition on reasons. Here are the reasons, because of this, because of this, because of this. 
and it'll go beyond verse 19. But in terms of the sentence, verse 19 begins the argument in terms of reasons. Last week, we spent all of our time, because we have to understand, and because it's a foreign concept, spent all our time just on the wrath of God. And particularly because the church waters it down today, and even those that, even all of us, have a tendency to shy away from it, or even a tendency to water it down, we had to make it clear what the scriptures teach. And in fact, we saw, even in our class, people had questions about it, and misunderstanding, and it wasn't totally evident. So, it's important to spend that time. In fact, we spent two weeks. So, in our outline... We spent last week looking at the divine nature of wrath. In other words, this wrath, it's the wrath of God. So what is that all about? Two weeks on that. Well, the wrath of God is revealed. There's what we looked at last week. The next element in this first part of the sentence is the revelation part. So let's talk a little bit about it. So the wrath of God is revealed. Is revealed. That's one word in the Greek text, and verbs obviously have tense, and we spent some time when we talked about the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been displayed or revealed in the past. We see judgments that are spoken of throughout the Old Testament. In fact, that's a common element in the Old Testament, but I didn't stress it, but there's judgments in the New Testament, and we said the most important judgment of all time, and the one that... God poured out the most wrath is when Jesus died on the cross. He took our wrath that we deserve. We simply accept that and trust that he did that. We receive forgiveness of sin. But there's other judgments that are recorded in the New Testament. Can you think of a couple? We talked about one particular one that's not clearly revealed, but Jesus does talk about it. Well, Ananias and Sapphira is an example in the book of Acts on a localized individual basis where God struck two people down. That's a display of wrath. Simon the magician is another example. Uh, But there was another one that took place after the events of the book of Acts that Jesus foretold. Do you remember that one? Which is very important. It's not specifically called out, but it's alluded to, and Jesus does spell it out in the Olivet Discourse. 70 A.D., not just destruction of the temple, but destruction of the entire nation of Israel and the scattering of the nation of Israel. Now, that was a judgment because the nation, not all Jews but and not all individuals, because all of the early disciples and a lot of the early Christians were, were Jewish, but the nation's official stand was to reject Jesus as Messiah. That brought judgment in 70 A.D., And they were scattered all the way until 1948. And it appears God is regathering them in order to continue his plan for the nation of Israel and for the world, basically. So that's a judgment of the first century that you can look back at and see where the revelation of God is revealed. There's several, we saw also, that are still future, that have not come about. But this passage, for the wrath of God, is revealed in the present tense, something that is observable day by day. Now, we can look to history and also see that throughout history, not only in the past, but there's examples throughout history where God has revealed his wrath during the church age, for example. 
And you can see examples in terms of nations and peoples where God has abandoned them to allow them to self-destruct. So we're going to look at this in the present tense. In fact, that's what this passage is all about. And particularly beginning in verse 24 to the end, where he's going to lay out just the evidence. And I'll kind of give you a forward look at that in a moment here. So what Romans is doing, the book of Romans... We've been saying that the meaning of the word gospel in its everyday sense, and if you lived in the first century and people used the word gospel, it could refer to any number of things that have good news. In other words, even a newspaper might be an article. That's good news. Or your favorite sports team won the Super Bowl. Wow, that's good news to you if that's your favorite team. Or whatever the case may be. A relative in your family is getting married. Good news. That's that's how the word is normally used. The writers have taken that everyday word, everyday usage, and said there's the ultimate good news in what God has done for mankind. And that's good news. What God did on the cross for all of humanity is good news. That's the gospel. So when you see that word in the New Testament, that's the idea. It's used in a theological sense in the sense of what God has done that is good news. So verse 16, remember this is the heart of the whole book of Romans, 16 and 17. It's a summary of the whole book. The book deals with this good news, with the gospel. So it says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel or the good news, for it is the power of God. That's good news. There's power available to change lives. Power that can impact me today in the 21st century that is going to radically change everything. My thinking, my lifestyle, my direction, and certainly my eternity. That's good news. There's power there. So, there's power for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. So, verse 16 is focused on this gospel message. And that's at the heart of everything else that Paul's going to deal with. And in verse 17, this gospel is going to reveal the righteousness of God. It's going to tell us who God is. and He is the ultimate standard. He is ultimately righteous. And he's going to tell us that this righteousness is available. That's what the book of Romans, at least first eight chapters, focus primarily on. This righteousness that God has that is available is offered and and provided for anyone that trusts in Jesus Christ, the Jew first and also the Gentile. So in verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Present tense again, same verb, same tense. So in the gospel, as you present it, you are revealing something of God's standards, what it takes to stand before a holy God, and what it means in in terms of God's justice and God's standards. So righteousness is revealed. Is that a, a verb tense that shows something that starts going or is Ongoing. It present tense? It's present tense. In, in this context, you would have that ongoing idea as well, just as we do in verse 18. So in the book of Romans, before you are ready to receive this great news, this good news, and understand and to receive that righteousness of God, 
we need to realize that uh, we don't have it for one. We have to realize the bad news. So the bad news must come first. And that's what verse 18 begins. So that's why he starts on a negative note, because if you are not aware of the bad news, then you have no sense of, well, why should I change? I mean, what, why do I, why should I seek anything different if you're totally unaware? And most people, particularly in our culture, are oblivious to their real condition before God. So verse 18, wrath must be revealed. And that's the essence of what he's talking about here. The wrath of God is revealed, present tense. It's like you can use the analogy of a lot of people that have cancer are unaware of it. For example, breast cancer, that's why you do these tests. Uh, You feel normal, you feel fine, you feel okay, and that's true of a lot of cancer. You're not aware of it until your body begins to degenerate and it has greater effects upon you. But most of the time, in the initial stages, you have no sense that you have cancer. In fact, all of us may have cancer today and not know it, okay, unless we're diagnosed. So unless we're aware of that, then what? We just go on living. But when we begin to understand that we have a fatal disease that is eating away at us and is ultimately going to destroy us, we just go on with life as if everything's normal. And it's not until the doctor says... We need to do surgery here. We need to do something radical, and we need to do it soon. Otherwise, this is going to be the outcome. So that's the spiritual condition of mankind. He has cancer that he may be unaware of, and it's eating away, and his life is gradually degenerating, and it's not until he takes a step of radical surgery to take that organ or that tumor or whatever it is out that his life will be radically changed. So also with the gospel, we're unaware that we stand before God under his wrath. And if a person stays, obviously you know the gospel message is man remains under that condition into eternity. So that's why we have wrath revealed first. We need to get the diagnosis of the divine surgeon so that now we can take The step of believing, okay, I'm going to submit myself to the doctor and let him take care of my cancer. I was going to say that unless you take care of it, you're just setting yourself up for the next round. Right. So it has to be dealt with completely. Exactly. And in the best manner that it can be dealt with. And the only way, this is the whole point of the book of Romans, the only solution is Jesus Christ, his justification. And that's the word that Paul uses. So the revelation, it's it's in present time. So you might ask the question, well, how can it be seen? And this jumps ahead, and we'll hopefully eventually get to verse 24. But there he's going to begin to lay out how you can see it visibly right before our eyes. And the, the scary thing is, just like the doctor analogy, You may hear what the doctor says, and you may say, well, I don't believe him. I mean, I feel fine. Everything's normal. You know, I'm still jogging. I'm still active. I still feel good. You know, I wake up, and I'm full of energy. You know, everything seems fine to me. I don't believe that doctor. You just go on. But what happens is sin is like a cancer, and it eats away. And the wrath of God is displayed in verse 24. Let's take a look at it. Verse 24. Somebody read it. 
We're just jumping ahead. We'll expand this when we get to this point. But I want you to see this because this is where Paul is heading. Who wants, who's got it? For God gave them over in the world. God gave them up. It's like the doctor saying, well, there's nothing I can do. Uh, you're just going to have to go on with your life until you recognize that uh, you, in fact, have a problem. I mean, I can't force you to have surgery. I can't force this upon you. Just go on. There comes a point where the doctor has to say, well, there's nothing I can do. I mean, he can't urge you or he can't force you. He can't command you in any way. And there comes a point in everybody's life. Now, before he gets this, he's going to show that people are without excuse. That's verse the end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. And in general, this is what God does in mankind. He lets them go such that the cancer eats them up. And in verse 24, we have an example. One example is people fall into addictions as a result of their sin, and now they're basically slaves to whatever that addiction is, and it's slowly eating them away, and eventually it's going to destroy them. And if God gives a person up, or even a culture, that's an evidence of his wrath. It's when God continues to work on a person's heart such that they begin to say, okay, I need to take some steps. But if he gives them up, then they end up in things like addictions. And you see that all around. And it can be addictions to all kinds of things, not just alcohol, but drugs and whatever. Work. Work, yeah. Whatever. Vacuuming for Linda. Yeah, that's her addiction. Verse 26, we have another example. Somebody, But notice at the end of 24, He gives them up that their bodies might be dishonored among them. In other words, he lets them go. That dishonoring of the body, it works away in a physical way. Addictions destroy the body physically, no matter what it is, even vacuuming, I'm sure. I can't give you an example of it, but I'm sure Linda can tell us. Very bad, yeah. That's why I don't do it very often. I don't want to get addicted. 126, somebody read it. Notice again, notice the repetition here. Somebody else read that one. This reason God gave them more degree, for the women exchanged the natural. Okay, and if you read 27, it talks in the same way men. What he's talking about is homosexuality. That is the end product of God giving up an individual in some cases, those that are inclined in the whole sexual area. Homosexuality is a destructive lifestyle. And when a culture like us not only condones it, but even encourages it, what it's doing, it is preventing people to realize that it's a bad thing. In other words, in the minds of people, it's not a bad thing. And what it does is eventually destroys. It's like a cancer. Same thing. Same idea. And when God gives up a culture, this is one of the evidences of him doing that. And we'll talk about that when we get there. And our culture pretty much accepts this today. In fact... I might get in trouble by saying that today. (laughs) Not here, but in terms of the culture. The unfortunate thing, it does the same thing that somebody that rejects the doctor's diagnosis, you don't seek a cure. And as a result, that person continues in that lifestyle, and it also affects the whole culture. So we'll talk about that as well. Verse 28, we have a third emphasis of the same thing. And in 26... You have the identical same phrase, God gave them over. In other words, he lets them live out 
the consequences of the sin that they are inclined to experience. Does that make sense? That is a not only a dangerous thing, but it's a very sobering thing to realize that God lets people just go. He doesn't force them to trust in him. He doesn't coerce them. He doesn't pressure them. He allows them to choose their own path. And when we choose our own path, it ends in these things. It ends in addictions. It ends in homosexuality. It ends in all kinds of other things. And that's the essence of 28 through 32. And you have a whole list of things that it ends in. And these are things that manifest themselves in relationships, in the culture, etc. So verse 28 Sins that end up in destruction. Somebody read verse 28. You can go on and on and on and on, on all the way to verse 32. Okay, And a lot of these end in things like murder, which brings its own consequences that leads to imprisonment, etc. And certainly lots of guilt and destruction in the areas, particularly the person that was killed. So these are sins that end ultimately in destruction. God gives people up and they go and follow all these paths. Last week we looked at Romans 13 and we saw that in that passage where government is in view and it's talking about basically government dealing with these kinds of issues where government enforces laws that preserve a culture, murder being one of them. And it says that government, God uses government as an instrument of his own. In other words, it's an instrument of God. It's a, the word for ministry is used there. It's a minister of God. And it's a minister of God for wrath, is what the text tells us. In other words, God punishing on a temporal basis by a prison sentence and imprisonment. And we have that in this passage. So it leads to those kinds of things. It leads to not only imprisonment, but In the financial area, if you're addicted in that area, it can lead to bankruptcy and all of the heartache and all of the pain associated with that. It may be an evidence that God has given up that family to those things. You see that? So this is how you can see it. You see the consequences of sin lived out without God intervening to bring salvation either in this temporal and this immediate sense and also in the ultimate sense. So when you have the salvation of the ultimate sense, now you can break these habits. Now you can break these addictions. Now you can set a pattern of life different than that that leads to destruction. So that's how the wrath of God is displayed in the present sense in this passage. So verses 24 to 28 gives us these examples. Like a lawyer in court, here's the evidence. And you see that in people's lives, and it's a display of the effects of this destructiveness of sin. Verse 32, this is where our culture is as well. Linda? No loopholes, right? Yes. Yeah, insanity is another example. Very good. Somebody read verse 32. We have, this is where our culture is. It supports that that is clearly wrong in Scripture. Somebody read it. Though they know God's decree. In other words, people know what is right and wrong. They know the decrees of God. Keep reading. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, 
They not only do them, approval to those... Give approval to those things that are destructive. That's the climate we live in in our culture. Wrong is made right. Right is looked down upon as wrong. We've kind of reversed everything. Spirituality is downplayed. Relationship with God is minimized. The evils of a culture are made okay. It's just an alternative lifestyle. It's just your own path. It's just your own truth. Well, they follow their own spirituality. Yes, their own spirituality. So there's a support for evil. And we have a tendency as well as individuals to minimize sin and to minimize the destructiveness of those things that in fact do bring destruction. Now, Yes, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Exactly. And that's where it ends in verse 32. So we'll get to that and we'll expand all of that later. Yes, because ultimately God is going to bring justice. Ultimately, we may not see it immediately. But he will affect justice. That's a little bit what we talked about last week. The pouring of wrath is God effecting justice. Okay, so present time. The source of this wrath, we've already said it's divine, but it comes from the very dwelling place of God. And what does the text say? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So it comes from him. Now, it's not evident to us, but we know that if God is involved, it has to come from him, from heaven. Okay? And it's against certain things, so we have a comprehensive extent. And this is the case that Paul is going to build. All have sinned is the conclusion he's going to come to. There is none righteous. He uses a lot of phrases here. There is none righteous. In other words, all of us are guilty. So there's no escape. And it doesn't matter. In fact, you'll notice in the text, it doesn't say, well, you escape it by going to church or you escape it by doing good works or you escape it by trying to treat people right. In other words, the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you have them do unto you. None of that is going to work. None of that has effect in terms of God. It's only what Jesus accomplished. So it's comprehensive in, in extent and... Let's take a look at that in some detail. So it's against all. Notice the word all. That includes every human being. That includes every area of life. All ungodliness. Now that word relates primarily to the opposite of God. In other words, all that that is opposed to or anti-God, whether it be thoughts, whether it be actions, whether it be motives, whether it be attitudes, All attitudes, all thoughts, all actions that go against what God has revealed. That's ungodliness. And some of the lists that we have later on in the chapter are examples of ungodliness. Since we are now the sons of Adam, we kind of fall into that all ungodly and unrighteousness. Yep, your name is, is between the A and the L there. You may not see it, but all of us are in that all. So it's comprehensive. That's why I use that little phrase there. Not only all ungodliness, but unrighteousness of men. These are the outworking of it. In other words, the ungodliness is more of a state of being, you might say. In other words, we stand unrighteous or ungodly before a God, and it expresses it in terms of unrighteousness of men. In other words, the, the visible manifestations of that. And you can just go down some of the lists there. We looked at some of those... In verse 28, depraved mind, see wickedness, greed, greed, 
evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, etc. You can go down the list. Those are just expressions of this unrighteousness. And when you read that, you're going to find that all of us have participated in some of those areas, if not all of them, at some points in our experience. Unrighteous of men. So it's comprehensive. The Bible, let's take a little bit of a expansion here. And what I've got on your outline sheet, the outline within an outline, just a list of specific other passages that reinforce what the book of Romans is saying in verse 18. These are just examples to explain this comprehensiveness in terms of who we are and where we stand. And I've got these on your outline sheet. When you talk about spiritually, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, we are dead. In fact, why don't you look these up? Somebody look up Ephesians 2. Who's got it? Craig? Somebody, Jeremiah 17, 9, when it comes to the heart. Ephesians 4, who's got Jeremiah? Linda's got it. You got Ephesians 4. How about Ephesians 2? Mark's got it. In fact, I'm going to have you read several things in Ephesians 2 because it occurs more than once. Uh, We've got Romans. Mary Lee's got it. Somebody else, Conscience. Titus, you've got it. All right, Jacob. And we'll save that one. Okay. In terms, and notice these are kind of the composite of who we are, just spiritually in general. In other words, overall, in terms of all spiritual things, what does it say in Ephesians 2, 1 and 2? And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses. Who were dead. Keep reading. Who once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, the spirit who now works. Okay, and he's talking to the Ephesians, and in general, the people at Ephesus, particularly the church there, trusted in Jesus Christ, so he speaks in terms of the past. Before they were believers, they were dead spiritually. Nothing they could do. A corpse can't give itself life or change its condition. That's a general kind of comprehensive idea in terms of our lostness. We are dead spiritually. And it takes a supernatural, divine intervention to bring about life. And that comes about simply by us trusting. Jeremiah 17.9, Linda. The heart is more incurable. The heart is, some versions, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? That's the essence of who we are. That's the condition of the heart outside of Christ. Jenny, go ahead, read Ephesians 4. Okay, here's the mind darkened, Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. Go ahead and read that. In other words, as unbelievers, as unbelievers walk, Using Gentiles in kind of a generic, unbelieving sense. Keep reading. Darkened in. Darkened in their understanding. In other words, we cannot understand and we cannot see sin. Or we cannot see our true condition. Our minds are affected. Keep reading. The life of God becomes Ignorance. Darkened. Hardness of heart. So you could use that verse for number two there as well. Physically, even, uh, you got that one, Mark, 2, two 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in lust, indulging in the desires of the flesh, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Did you catch that? Physically evil of the flesh, the evilness of the flesh in that context. And by the way, there's lots of other passages as well. For example, 
1 John 2.16 talks about the lusts of the flesh. In other words, the things in our body that drive us to do evil things or indulge in certain things. So physically, our bodies are tainted by sin. We could classify it as evil. So not only are we spiritually dead, not only is our heart desperately wicked, not only are our minds darkened such that we don't understand spiritual things, but physically, we could say our flesh is evil as well. That's not the end of it. Notice Romans 3.11, our wills are affected. In other words, our desires and our wills are incapable of changing. Who's got that one? No one understands, no one seeks for God, and 12a, they all turn to... Okay, no one seeks God. In other words, no one exercises the will to seek after God. Now, you could even read uh, 7, why don't you skip to 7, chapter 7, verse 18, and read on, and you're going to find out more about the will, how the will just can't do the things that we know are right. Go ahead. For I know that nothing dwells in me. Nothing good dwells in me. That's a kind of a broad statement. Now he's going to expand that. That is in my flesh. For I have desire to do what is right. There's the will, the desire to do what is right, but what? But not the ability to carry it out. No ability to carry it out. And he expands that. Keep reading. For I do not do the good I want. The evil I do not want is what on And you can read on and on and on because he goes on and explains how I'm just incapable of exercise. In other words, it's not willpower. I don't have willpower. I don't have the power to do the very things that I know I should do. So our will is rebellious. And our conscience is defiled. Who's got Titus? Jacob, you got Titus one fifteen. Pure, all things. Do those who are defiled and unrepentant? Conscience are defiled. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. Do you get that? And there's lots of other verses that associate spiritually, heart, mind, physically, will, conscience. There's several others as well that give us the same picture using different words. And that's why in the book of Romans, Romans 5.18 says that we're under wrath, and that's the essence of uh, verse 18 of chapter 1 as well. We're under wrath. I'll let you look up Romans 5.18 on your own. The Bible describes this as depravity, and it uses a lot of other phrases to describe this condition that all of us find ourselves in. And here's just a list of some of them that describes the condition of mankind. Theologically, we call that depravity. I like and I believe in the concept of total depravity. The Bible describes us as lost, like the lost son. In fact, that's what the parable is all about, lostness. The Bible describes us as blind. In other words, we cannot see things spiritually as they really are. We only see things from a human physical perspective. We are also naked. In other words, we stand before God as if we are naked, totally exposed. He's the only one that sees who we ultimately are. We stand before him naked. We're helpless. That's also in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. We're described as helpless. We can't change our condition. We could also say we are unrighteous. Another word that Paul uses, and he uses it here as well unrighteousness in verse 18. We're also described as evil. Jesus uses that word. And he speaks of, even in one context, he's 
talks about you being evil, know how to give good gifts. I mean, you can do good philanthropy type things, but in terms of spiritual things, they're evil. So Jesus uses that, and it's also used in other places. We're called defiled. In the passage we just read, our consciences and our minds are defiled, and the word is used elsewhere of other aspects of who we are. Also use the word depraved. That's in verse, what, 20, 28 or so in there in the book of Romans, chapter 1. We're depraved. It also used darkened. We saw that in Ephesians. It uses unable to respond, the idea that we can't change our situation. It talks about us being in bondage, slaves to sin. That's Romans 6. Under Satan's control, First John 5, where Satan is under, has dominion over us under control. Now, the unbeliever feels fine. The unbeliever doesn't sense all of this. That's why we need the gospel to reveal that this is our true condition. The unbeliever doesn't think he has cancer, spiritual cancer. But he is actually under, he's a puppet of Satan. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. Unable to understand. We read that verse in Romans. Romans uh, 3, 10, and 11. There's none righteous. We don't, not even one. Unable to understand. Unable to, to uh, respond. Enemies of God. That's in Romans as well. Romans 5. We're enemies of God. The unbeliever is unaware of that. We stand condemned. That's a favorite word of Paul in the book of Romans. Condemnation. Children of wrath. We read that. Well, we didn't read that one. Ephesians, you got that one. Who had Ephesians? Uh, Mark, read that one. 2 3, did you read that that far? Children of wrath. That's the emphasis of 118. We're children of wrath, or the idea of being under wrath. That's depravity. That's who we are. That is our condition. And Paul, in a court before God, or a divine court, is going to argue this case. We have cancer. We're on the verge of eternal damnation. The only solution, he's going to argue in case, Jesus Christ. That doesn't begin till chapter 3, beginning, what is it, verse 18 or so. I can't remember exactly. That's depravity. That's who we are. So, the revelation of God's wrath, you have to understand the nature of God and that he's a God of wrath. This is revealed, and you can see it, it's evident, it's in the present tense, you can see it all around us, in the unbelieving world, in fact you can see it in your own life, because of our tendency, it's, this wrath has a heavenly source, and it's comprehensive in that all of us have this condition, all of us are desperately lost, and then he's going to describe the objects of that wrath, the sinful objects, And he's going to talk about us suppressing the truth. The unrighteous of man who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that's who we are. Our tendency is to suppress the truth. We don't want to hear the gospel message. We don't want to hear the bad news. Don't tell me about that. Don't tell me about the bad news. Don't tell me that I'm a sinner. Don't tell me that I'm lost. Don't tell me that I've got inward spiritual cancer. We avoid that. But that's one of the things that we need to make clear in the presentation of the gospel. So, when we do present the gospel to unbelievers, we need to make clear man's real condition. And this is what this passage is doing, as well as all the other passages that we looked at. Make sense?
So I know all of you are aware of that, and all of you understand this aspect of the nature of man, but we need to think through how do I present that in a way that will strike home with the person that I'm sharing the gospel with, and that's the challenge. Without watering it down, and at the same time, without just blasting them, and without just kind of blowing them away, in a way that uh, communicates. And sometimes you have to wait till people get to a point of realizing that they have their need already, and then you can add on to that and show them they really don't even understand how desperately they need Jesus Christ. And in that context, we can give them the good news. Who wants to pray for us? Craig. Father, we come to acknowledge you are. You're everywhere, and you know us. There's nothing how far away. Pray that we'll be upon without you. Ask you to help us in our this week. And we just pray for those. Amen. We praise him for his grace.